living the word today. So, every time we open this book, it is a fresh opportunity for God to talk to us. Let's make sure, let's make very sure that we are listening to what he wants to say to us. Livingthewordtoday.com. Look, the message of the Bible does indeed prepare us for eternity, but it also prepares us for the day we are currently living. Welcome to Living the Word Today. We invite you to spend the next few minutes studying God's Word with your Bible teacher, Jesse Wagoner. Pastor Wagoner's desire for you is not only to understand God's truth, but to help you live it today. More resources can be found on our website, livingthewordtoday.com. Now it is time to open your heart and your Bible for your time in the Word. We are talking about this fact that that Hebrews tells us that Jesus indeed is the greatest of all and he is worthy of our trust and we need to find a better way to trust in him. And as we do, we, we look into his word. Now he tells us, and this is a good point here, of all the sort of confusing things that we face, he says, now this is the main point of the things we're saying. And I'm glad that we've gotten to the main point. Uh, he's kind of he's like, okay, here's where we're at. Now this main point we're going to look at for two and a half more chapters, Okay. So we've got a ways to go. But if you recall that we've said this, and it's very evident from the book of Hebrews, that it's saying that Jesus indeed is greater than all. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Moses, greater than the law, greater than the sacrifices, greater than the sanctuary, greater than the priesthood, greater than the high priest. And he spent some time talking about this high priest. And you see it here in verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The fact of the matter is we have such a high priest. If you go back to verse 26 of the previous chapter, you see it says, For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. He's uniquely, singularly, and completely qualified to be this high priest. And he, he spells out in, in verses 1 through 6 some of those, those characteristics of this great high priest. Then he'll change gear in chapters, verse 7 and following where he talks about the, the covenant and the covenant that is connected to the priesthood. But the fact of the matter is we need someone who can represent us before God, who can be the mediator between us and God, as he mentions in verse 6, which we'll get to in a moment. So we want to look at this, and we just want to think our way through, and then there's a particular application that's very evident in the text that both for those who were the Hebrews of the early first century who, would, who were raised in Judaism, steeped in its culture and tradition, and now we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they face pressure. Pressure from persecution on the outside. They face pressure from their own, the dynamics of their own hearts, as we do. But they also face pressure from their own families and their own people, their own culture. It's hard for us to fully appreciate the pressure they were under. A pressure to say, maybe I don't want to be too serious about following Christ. Maybe I want to back off. Maybe I want to identify more with my Jewish roots than I do with my following Christ reality. So he gives them every opportunity to say something better is coming, something superior, someone superior has come. And he is, as he says in verse 1, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. First of all, he's better because he is on, he's in a better place. Not just an earthly sanctuary, not just an earthly place of worship. And you recall in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, 
God told Moses to construct a structure, a portable structure, known as the tabernacle. It was in the center of the camp when they traveled during those 40 years in the wilderness. It was the place of worship. It's where God dwelt. There was the holy place that the priests entered into daily, and then there was the holiest place, the holy of holies where the presence of God dwelt. Only to be entered behind that veil one day per year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. And on that Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in taking blood to sprinkle on the the top of the Ark of the Covenant, that part of the Ark known as the Mercy Seat, to be a covering for the sins of mankind. And then they would do it again the next year, and the next year, and the next year, and the next year. And part of that sacrificial system we're going to see play out in these next two and a half chapters. But I just want to introduce one basic concept, and that is he's better than how we react to it. So he's in a better place. Where is he? At the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. By the way, that trumps everything else. There is no higher place. There's no better place. He has been given a name which is above every name. And we know, as Paul wrote to the Philippians, and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. What is that lordship? He's right there at the throne over all things. Not only is he in in the better place, he's in the highest place, but he has a higher service. Verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So he's serving there, and we'll see that later in some of his serving as we go through this. But he is serving as a high priest. And a high priest, primarily he was to settle the issue of sin, covering blood to be at least a temporary partial picture, if you will, of settling sin. You know, if you go out in the world and the thinking of man and the history of man, all the religions of the world will look at sin one of three ways. First of all, there's this maybe a subset that says there is no God, this, this is all there is, there's nothing out there for us, all right? You, you, can, just, you can just take all that off. I'm not going to talk about any of that, Jeremy, I'm sorry. Just, just make it go away. That was yesterday's sermon. Today's sermon's a little different. <laughs> They would tell you there is no God. Well, I honestly believe that's probably rare and probably not completely accurate because we're told in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in our hearts. There's something about us that longs for life beyond this life, and we, we sort of innately know that unless it's educated out of us. Or the other philosophy is of dealing with sin is simply this, that God just is going to lower the standards. You know, the class is not doing well, so we'll grade every C to a B and every B to an A, and everybody will pass. We'll grade on a curve. Although that negates the fact that he is holy, completely holy, totally holy. The angels cry, as Isaiah saw in chapter 6, at the throne of God, on either side of the throne, crying back and forth, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This, this, this God. He can't lower the standards. Or then there's the philosophy that believes that, that we'll just, uh, you know, a big balance scale, okay? It's kind of, you know, on these side. If we can get enough good on this side, it'll balance us and tip us over to the fact that God's saying, well, you're good enough, you can come on into heaven. If I can just, if, if you can be better than the people on the other side of the scale, and I can have enough good on this side of the scale, it just tips it over and that works. Wrong. <laughs> because no matter how good we think we could be, we are still completely and totally and unchangeably and inalterably imperfect before God who is righteous and just. So what does God do? 
He comes in the person of His Son and pays sin's price through a once-for-all sacrificial offering of Himself on the cross. And in that, He mediates. He's the great high priest to arrange things so that He can transform us through the forgiveness of sins and begin the process of transformation of us in a practical sense as we grow in Him. And someday, I love how John wrote it, don't you? We shall be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. Not with faith, but sight. So, we need this high priest. He's in the highest place. He has the highest service. Verse 2 says, a minister of the sanctuary. Now, you get the first hint of where he's going here. Of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, not man. Well, the tabernacle that Moses erected was erected by men. And the temple that Solomon built was erected by men. And after it was destroyed and the Babylonian captivity takes place, the second temple was constructed and built by men and then rebuilt by Herod, which was obviously, I think, from the text of Hebrews, still standing when these words were spoken. And I still believe this probably was more of a sermon than a letter because it has that sermonic quality. I think it's a transcription of a sermon, I think. We don't know who wrote it, but we certainly know it was inspired by God from all that it contains. Verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to both offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, Jesus, also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. There it sounds like it's present tense offering. He, he, he did something higher, in a higher place, a higher person, a higher plane, and he settled this, this reality of sin by offering a gift there. Now, these things on the earth that he's talking about in verse 4, he gets to this, and this is, there's two key phrases that I want you to really camp on as we come to it. Who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, quote from the Old Testament now, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain, and he did. But now, okay, here's the contrast. And maybe you want to look at it this way. The Old Testament is sort of the first act of a drama. It's much more than a drama, but if you could allow me that analogy. And the New Testament is like the second act of a drama. If you come in in the second act, you're going to miss why all these things need to be and who the characters are and that sort of thing. If you just watch the first act and don't get the second act, it's incomplete. Thankfully, we live in a day where we have the completed text in front of us. We see that we needed a Savior. This was a picture, a copy, a pattern to point the way, to show us basically that we need a Savior desperately, that we only can get in a place of closeness with God through a Savior, a great high priest. And we have Him in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then the New Testament completes that. So you see both of those things are in play. That's why Hebrews is such a pivotal book, because it, it is the one New Testament book that most completely connects the opening act of the Old Testament with the closing act of this great drama of God. Some people have said it this way, that the Old Testament is that which proclaims that we need a Savior. The Gospels proclaim the story of the Savior. I am sorry that we need a Savior, the letters of the New Testament proclaim who that Savior is in fullness, 
And the book of Revelation proclaims the end of the story of the Savior when He comes back to us. So it's complete. It's all there. So look what he says here, begin in verse 5. Who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed, when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. There's again one of those comparisons. Better, more, complete. He's obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator, keyword of a better covenant which was established on better promises in 7 through the end of the chapter, talk about the covenant. We'll save that for next time. But this mediator is this go-between, this one who represents us to God. Now, for an Old Testament believer, or even a New Testament believer who was steeped in Judaism, the Hebrew reality, we can understand why they would have problems with, because they they were connected to the pictures, the pattern, the copy, the shadow. Because they went to the temple. They were there on Passover. They knew who the high priest was. They knew where they had come from. They knew their connection to Abraham and Isaac and, and Moses and David and all those heroes of the faith. They knew all of that, and so they maybe had a hard time seeing how that could be replaced, how something better has come. But he says they're just copies and shadows. There's some thought because you understand, even though these were Christians who were also Hebrews, they also were growing up in a Greek culture under the thumb of Roman domination. That's a lot of different factors factoring in, but think about this. Their basic thought structure of the world around them was was Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek, which was the common language of the Roman Empire. They, they had all that steeped in their mind. And Plato was one of the great, if you know from your history, that, that was one of the great philosophers of Greece. He wrote a, a, a text that was actually a spoken dialogue, if you understand the, the writings of Plato. But it was, it, was a, it was an allegory of the cave, it was called. Very, very familiar. Some of you are familiar with it, I'm sure, from your studies of history. But basically, Plato looked at this. He says, imagine you're in a cave... And all you can see is the wall of the cave, and there's a fire behind you, and there's some things going on back there, and you see the shadow cast from that fire on the wall of the cave. You can't see the real objects. All you can see is the shadow. You don't see the end of it. You just see the, sh- the shadows. And he basically is describing that's kind of the, the basic condition of man. He also says we, we should be enlightened and learn more than that. But, but basically he's saying we don't, we're just seeing a shadow. We're not seeing the whole thing. There's some thought that maybe that tapped into that sort of in their culture when he used the word shadows. I don't know for sure. But they had a difficulty overcoming what they saw with what now they believed about the Lord Jesus Christ being the great high priest in heaven. Well, what about us? Well, we've got it made, right? I mean, we got the New Testament. We got, we got another 27 books laid on top of the Old Testament. We have the Apostle Paul. We have Peter. We have Matthew and Mark and John and and Jude and James and whoever wrote this book and then the Apocalypse, the Revelation. We, 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 We don't look at the shadow, do we? Or do we? I'm convinced that all of us at one time or another, and maybe most of us more than we would care to admit, that we still live in shadow land. And my call to you is simply this. 
that with God's help that we come out of the shadows. And here's how I think we walk in the shadows. They walked in the shadows because they saw all this, this stuff from the Old Testament, the, the sanctuary and the priesthood and the sacrifices and the covenant that he's going to talk about later in this chapter. And we look back and we see Jesus and we know the gospel. We understand a little bit about church history and how it developed in Acts. We understand the teachings of Paul. We understand the doctrines of the faith. We understand all that. Their problem of living in the shadows was an unfamiliarity with what was to come. And we have a problem of living with too much familiarity with what has come. We can talk about the gospel. Oh, gospel, yes, God. Missionaries going over there to Africa. God bless you for we, we love that. We, we, but it's common to us. It's, it's normal to us. And we can become so comfortable with the reality of that, we miss the reality of that in the person and the work and the presence and this magnificence of Jesus himself. Let me just share, share this with you. I'm going to share something with you that if I just said it blandly and didn't preface it this, we'd say, you'd all say, amen, that's good, yep, with you, Pastor. But let me just say it, and if I could just pull you out of the shadows, pull myself out of the shadows. Any moment, any time, anywhere, on any subject, you can speak directly to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the great high priest who is seated at the right hand of God, waits to hear you say whatever you want to say. Ask for whatever you want to ask for. To accept whatever praise is on your lips. Whatever questions you have that you ask. We have a great high priest who's making intercession for us, who's our mediator between God and man. That word mediator back in verse 6. He's the one who has brought us to himself. He's the one who has paid the price with his own blood that now we can stand unholy as we are. We stand wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus because of him. The reality is we have access to God any moment. Question, how do we do with that reality? Sometimes we have, you know, if you want to plead guilty this, someone says, hey, would you pray for so-and-so? They're really sick. Well, yep, yep, I'll pray about that. And then maybe two or three days later, oh, I didn't pray for that. Or maybe even worse, you even forgot that you promised to pray for that. Or we just get, go through our lives just doing our stuff, and we're just not really communicating with him as we should. If we can get a hold of this reality and get past the shadowiness of the fact that we don't see him with these eyes on the throne. And go back to verse 1. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Let's talk to him. As the hymn writer wrote long ago that we know he's there for us. And he, we, we walk with him and he, we talk with him and he tells me that I am his own, right? Let me give you another one. Jesus said in John 13, he told his shocked disciples, I'm going away. And they were all like, what? That's not what it says in the text of Scripture, but that's what they said. What? Because, no, we're, about, we're in Jerusalem. You're about to kick out the Romans. You're trying to take over the priesthood, you know, the, the, all, the, all the, the Pharisees and all the Pharisaical things and, and, and purify the priesthood. And you're going to set up a new administration. And the 12 of us... The only question for us is who gets to be number one and number two, who gets to be secretary of state, who gets to be the treasurer. You know, we're going to divide up all the jobs that need to be taken. And then Jesus says, oh, I'm going away. 
And then Thomas says later in chapter 14, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Well, later in that same context, Jesus says, if I go away, and it's better for me to go away, because when I go away, I will send you another comforter, another helper, another come-alongside-you person. You ready for another one? You want to get stretched a little bit? We get stretched a little bit in this reality that, that we need to get past the shadows. The Spirit of God, when He came, doesn't come to be with us or to be near us. He comes to be in us. That we walk around with God inside of us? Yeah, that's what the Scriptures teach. The shadows is like seeing these things and knowing them to be true. To step out of the shadows means we practice in our lives, that we talk to Him, that we follow the leading of the Spirit, that we don't want to grieve Him, we don't want to disobey Him. We don't want to quench His promptings in our lives. I'll give you one more. God wanted to communicate the things we needed to know in a way that we could relate to them that they would be accessible by people like us. So he did the most accessible thing throughout all of the ages, all right? He wrote it down in a book. And he made sure that all these centuries later, people like you and I have access to the source documents of what God wanted you to know and me to know. And sometimes we talk about, oh, I want to read a book that explains what the Bible says, or... I want to find a summary that will summarize all that difficult stuff. Or give me a chart. I like all that stuff too. I really do. Nothing wrong with that. But we need to open the book. We need to read it ourselves. We need to see the text in front of us. We need to try to figure out what God is saying to us. And then that same trifecta of practice that we pray to the, the high priest... And we trust in the Spirit of God. As we listen to the Word of God that Jesus says, my Word is truth, and it is living. It's alive. It's powerful. It's like a two-edged sword that just pierces right through to the core of our being. If you want to step out of the shadows, don't just know about Jesus, but know Jesus. Don't just talk about Jesus. Talk to Jesus. Don't just listen, but listen to his eternal words. Maybe take some steps out of the shadows. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in the shadows because you've never taken the first step. Come to the reality that you need a Savior. And the the reality, the only sensible thing to believe is Jesus is the only Savior. Every place else you look is going to leave trying to be better than somebody else or hoping that God's going to just let us in anyway, or that's not real, just bare our head in the sand kind of approach. The reality is you need a Savior, and Jesus has done all that is needed to save you, and all that awaits is you to take a step of belief, to say, I believe that is true, and I believe that is true for me. Those that came through the waters of baptism just a few minutes ago stood before us public, publicly testified through action and verbal verbally, that they were believers in Christ. You could be a believer in Christ if you just take that step. If you say, I need to talk to somebody, I don't really understand that, you can meet one of us here at this after service or any time, or even right now in the privacy of your own heart, you could say, I'm, I'm, up, I'm, 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 I'm through with the games. 
I'm through with the playing and the pretending. I want to believe in Christ. Step out of the shadows. Why? Because we have a, such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of those, excuse me, right hand of the throne of the majesty of the heavens, verse 6. But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Friends, let's get out of the shadows. Don't settle for the copies. Let's live and interact with his followers. Thank you for joining us for Living the Word today. We appreciate your sharing in this study of the scriptures. Also, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you will not miss a single episode. And thanks, too, for your prayers and for letting others know of this ministry as we seek to be living the Word today. We would love to have your feedback and to hear from you, and the best way to contact us is through our website, livingthewordtoday.com. Until next time, may His blessing be yours.